listening to Descent Magazine's Belaboured Podcast, hosted by Sarah Jaffe and Michelle Chen. Hi, Michelle. Hey, Sarah. Welcome to Belaboured Episode 158. Today, we're talking about the big win that the Missouri labor movement scored against a so-called right-to-work law in the wake of the Supreme Court's Janus decision, a two-thirds vote against right-to-work on the ballot in a relatively low union-density state is a big positive sign for labor. So we talked to two Missouri labor organizers about how it was done, what we can learn, and what comes next. But first, the news. This week, prison inmates around the country are participating in a massive coordinated prison strike in protest of working and living conditions in American prisons. We've covered prison strikes before on this podcast, but this one is of particular interest. It has been organized across the country with actions reported from California to Florida by prisoners themselves, part of a network called Jailhouse Lawyers Speak, with the support of the Incarcerated Workers Organizing Committee of the Industrial Workers of the World, IWW. Their demands center on the fact that forced labor in prison is akin to slavery, as they note the 13th Amendment banned slavery except as punishment for a crime. In addition to refusing work, prisoners are boycotting commissary purchases and some are even hunger striking. We bring you a clip from a press call hosted by organizers of the strike. So the prisoner strike has been underway for more than 24 hours now. In the first day, we got word of actions coming out of prisons from Halifax, Nova Scotia, North Carolina, South Carolina, Georgia, Florida, Northwest Detention Center in Tacoma, Washington, and Folsom Prison Prison in California. They all reported different versions of strike action. We saw outside solidarity actions in at least 21 cities around the U.S. and as far abroad as Leipzig, Germany. We saw Palestinian political prisoners give a statement of solidarity from their prisons in occupied Palestine. We wanna note that although there aren't widespread reports of actions coming out of prisons, that people need to understand that the tactics being used in the strike are not always visible. Prisoners are boycotting commissaries. They are engaging in hunger strikes, which can take days for the state to acknowledge. And they will be engaging in sit-ins and work strikes, which are not always reported to the outside. As we saw in 2016, departments of correctable sources of information for these actions and will deny them and seek to repress those who are engaged in them. We have spoken with family members who have suggested that communication has been difficult in these times coming out of prisons. Um, New Mexico had a statewide lockdown yesterday. Departments of corrections in this country are working overtime to provide to try and prevent strike action and to try and prevent word from getting out about actions that are taking place. The strike is about 10 different demands. While prison slavery has become a galvanizing force in the public eye, and it is a key element that prisoners are protesting against, people need to understand how truth and sentencing laws function, how gang enhancement laws function, and how the Prison Litigation Reform Act works and why these are things that prisoners are targeting their protest around. We need to be talking about the lack of rehabilitation programs, mental health care, and the lack of education programs, and how these undermine the ostensibly rehabilitative nature of the prison system itself. Prisoners crafted these demands carefully through national organizing based on circumstances of the Lee prison violence that occurred earlier this year. They understand how the state brings about the conditions of violence like that 
and the types of changes that are necessary to prevent that sort of violence from occurring. This is a human rights campaign, and each of these demands should be understood through a human rights lens. And then fighting fire. So this is something that um, people have been asking us a lot of questions about. Obviously, that is a very visible way that inmates are involved in labor. It's very sort of prominent. It's unlikely, but, you know, I don't want to say nobody's going to not participate because they might. But, you know, when a prisoner is on a work release program like that, they're less likely to give up that quote unquote privilege, no matter how dangerous that job is. And so my take on that is that it always says more about how dangerous and awful the prison is itself, that they're willing to put their own life at risk in order to get out of their prison cell. Can I speak on that too, since yeah. this is primarily a California phenomenon? Yeah. Yeah, roughly one third of the uh, seasonal firefighting force are um, incarcerated people in California. The prison fire camps um, can hold above 4,200 you know, people. Right now, I think the ranks are about 37, 3,800 enrolled in those fire camp work programs. Only certain prisoners are eligible for firework. Essentially, minimum security prisoners are the only ones allowed to apply for these jobs. And within that subset, um, there are other disqualifications. These are prisoners on short sentences and are of a very small select number that are able to earn like time towards early release. So additionally, even though it's uh, profoundly underpaid and about the hardest and most dangerous work on the planet, it's still better than incarceration, which is essentially torture. But also prisoner labor is a foundation of only two institutions. There's uh, the maintenance of the prison itself and firefighting, which it's essential to. It's also portrayed as cost-saving, which is uh, incorrect. That's only if you take incarceration on criminalized you know, behavior on low-level offenses as a given at this massive industrial scale. California approximately you know, averages about $80,000 per incarcerated person if you divide up their budget roughly. That's not a straight audit number of how much, time, how much money it takes to put someone in a fire camp. But at $80,000 a head, that's $300 million to essentially incarcerate 4,000 people. Now, they claim savings of $100 million. In the state's logic, it assumes incarceration and this level of discipline and punishment to continue ad infinitum. So it only is regarded as a saving if you regard that state of slavery and exploitation as a given. And we will have more information on the national prison strike up at the Descent website. So how much do you value your health care? The Trump administration wants to make you prove just how much you care about staying healthy by making the very poor and very sick of America work for every last penny of their Medicaid coverage. The Department of Health and Human Services is now allowing individual states to set so-called work requirements as a condition of Medicaid, which would basically mandate people to work to receive their medical care. According to the White House's rationale, there are too many non-disabled adults who are on welfare and not working, and it's obviously a sign that they're just not willing to work. Forcing them to work in order to maintain their health coverage would, they argue, improve self-sufficiency. Under sweeping reforms to the Kentucky Health Program, for instance, maintaining Medicaid under this new plan would require 80 hours per month of employment or so-called community engagement, 
Uh, that could be volunteer work. And uh, the benefits could be cut if they earned incomes above the poverty level or were unable to meet the work requirement. Welfare advocates see two big problems with this. They say that tying Medicaid eligibility to work requirements ignores the fact that First of all, many people who are on Medicaid who can work already are, and those who do not, perhaps because they're really sick, have pretty good excuses not to be working. But of course, the fact that they face major barriers to earning a decent living is very hard to prove in order to get a special exemption from the state under the criteria that many are proposing. According to the Center on Budget and Policy Priorities, contrary to the assumption that Medicaid beneficiaries often sponge off the system, the vast majority of able-bodied beneficiaries are already either employed or are actively seeking work. And even among those with a high school degree or less, nearly three-quarters had held jobs in the past year. Those who weren't working had pretty good reasons to be opting out of the workforce, such as attending school or caring for a relative. And many of them continued working even despite these disadvantages and despite having quite significant health problems. It is projected that thousands of these people could be purged from Medicaid under these waivers because they fail to meet the work requirements and cannot prove that they qualify for a special exemption. Researchers found that proving that they've worked the requisite number of hours would be extremely difficult because of high levels of unemployment, uh, job turnover, and just generally economic instability. In other words, the people who need the exemption the most are those who will have the most difficulty proving their case to the state. And for that, these people will be punished. We have been talking a lot about the collapse of labor law on this podcast and what can be done to fix it. And now our colleagues at the Economic Policy Institute have released a new agenda for what labor policy could look like, from banning right to work to protecting secondary strikes to classics like paid sick time and raising the minimum wage. I spoke with Celine McNicholas of EPI about the agenda. So talk us through, I guess, some of the items on this agenda. You've got it organized under several headings. And how all of this fits together? Yeah, so I think one of the things that um, I'll, I'll sort of frame this around this notion that there's, there's labor law and then there's sort of fundamental, you know, workers' rights, right, that apply to all working mm-hmm. people, whether or not they're, you know, members of, of a union um, or, you know, you're an individual worker at a workplace where, you know, you, you don't have a union or you're a worker who's not cover, currently covered by labor law um, protections, which means that you, you don't have the right to, to unionize. And, and those are domestic workers, um, you know, folks who, who are working in people's homes, um, you know, caregivers. And, and so there are, there are lots of different reforms that are sort of necessary, and we try and put these in, in buckets. And, you know, our, our first bucket, um, is, and I think this is becoming a, a sort of positively a consistent refrain, is that people need need the right to be able to organize and have a union in their workplace. And so that means expanding existing protections such that some of those workers who have traditionally been excluded from labor law protections are are now covered. Um, And it also means that, you know, employers do not sort of get the right to frustrate workers' ability to come together and demand a union, vote for a union in their workplace. So the first, you know, tranche is really strengthening collective bargaining, and that's for workers traditionally covered, but also expanding the right to organize. And then there's sort of this notion that there's still going to be workers um, who, who are not going to be able to access a union. And that means okay. that we've got to sort of do more to ensure a basic level of job quality, that there's, you know, fundamental, you know, fair wages, fair minimum wage, you know, people have a right to overtime protections, those kinds of things. And then in addition, we've got to do something now to combat 
at this sort of expanding employer practice of requiring workers to sort of sign away all of these existing rights as a condition of employment, um, which I think is going to become something that just continues to to grow, a practice that unfortunately employers are now, um, you know, going to be considering and, you know, as almost negligent if they don't require workers to, you know, sign away these rights after the Supreme Court ruling. So that's another bucket. And then the sort of final piece, which applies, you know, across the board, and I think the Trump administration has been a, a classic example of how this should not work, and that is is that, yeah. you know, we need enforcement of these rights. We need government enforcement. We need folks to be able to come in, investigate, inspect, ensure that our workplaces are safe, ensure that we're being mm-hmm. paid properly. You know, without enforcement, none of those rights have any kind of real meaning. You also have, within these various layers, um, some sort of rarely discussed things that are, are quite important, like you mentioned the right to, you know, labor protections for secondary strikes, which... Um, goes way back. But also um, talk about like non-compete agreements and how workers are increasingly being forced into signing these. So, you know, it, it's easy to get headline level attention for things like a minimum wage increase. But talk about some of these more granular things that maybe most people in a world with 6% private sector union density don't even know about. One of the things that stands out to me as we were pulling together, you know, this report is you know, the the sort of massive shift in the law, while you, you know, mentioned none of these are new ideas and policymakers and workers advocates have, you know, long discussed an appropriate, um, you know, joint employer standard. Um, There's been increased discussion of non-compete agreements and how, you know, how to best combat those. But in terms of, you know, how can workers get these rights in the real world, right? Um, if, right. if we had to choose one one area, what would that, you know, how could we best serve workers? And I think one thing that's really clear is because there are so many um, reforms that are necessary. So you, that would mean that Congress would have to hit the ground running with a Democrat-controlled Congress and just pass one worker, you know, um, rights measure after another. Or, you, you know, we could do something meaningful to make workers have real access to, to unions. And, and they would get many of the same protections via a collective bargaining agreement that would otherwise, you know, have to be enacted um, through law. And, you know, so strengthening the, the right to organize, the right to be a member of a union, and then what can unions do for workers, right? And to your point, sort mm-hmm. of the secondary, you know, sort of re, reimagining the, the sort of power of, you know, organized labor, I think, to me, is sort of the takeaway from the report. Um, and yeah. that gets into lots of, you know, things that have sort of eroded for um, organized mm-hmm. labor over, you know, over the last um, 40, 50 years. Uh, and, yeah. you know, certainly the right to strike being, you know, essential to, to that, um, you know, right to effectively organize. Um, you don't have yeah. much leverage if at the end of the day, you know, an employer can just sort of replace you, um, which is the current state yeah. of, of the law um, for workers right. who do, uh, you know, decide to engage in a strike because they've, you know, they've they've come to their wit's end. They're not getting the, you know, wage increase. They're working in an unsafe condition. They're being treated disrespectfully. You know, if you take away, you know, workers' ability to kind of um, advocate for themselves in those processes, then, you know, essentially you take away the, you know, benefit of being in a in a bargaining unit. In the report, you note that some of these proposals are already in bills before Congress. So sort of two-part question, what are the chances of any of these particular ones or any of them look like they would move very quickly, say, if the Democrats took back Congress? 
I guess, and the presidency, because it's not like Trump is going to sign any of them. Um, and then what would link it, trying to link them together to make a big sort of, you know, labor bill of rights kind of thing, what would that look like? So I think it's it's really encouraging that so many of these reforms already um, live in existing uh, introduced legislation in, in Congress. Uh, none of them get a great deal of attention, but um, in particular, the Workers' Freedom to Negotiate Act, which was introduced this Congress, which um, goes to the heart of many of the you know um, reforms aimed at ensuring that folks can unionize. Um, that's the the piece of legislation that includes some of the, the re, um, reimagined right to strike, uh, you know, reforms right. as well. Um, you know, in terms of how, how likely it is uh, that any of this, you know, passes, I think that that's really on all of us, right, that we, yeah. you know, we have a responsibility, um, you know, as advocates to, you know, g- get in there and, and make sure that people are, number one, aware of these bills and also that there's a grassroots moment. I- That was Celine McNicholas of EPI, and you can find out more about the report and read our full conversation with the links at the Descent website, descentmagazine.org. Recently, a school groundskeeper in California named Dwayne Johnson won a landmark legal battle against the seed giant Monsanto in a lawsuit charging that the company had been responsible for his terminal cancer because it failed to inform him, as well as other workers, of course, of the risks of constant occupational exposure to Monsanto's special Roundup Ready pesticide. This contains the controversial chemical glyphosate, which has been widely associated with many health problems, including cancer. Johnson's case has advanced the long-standing battle between consumer and worker advocates and this global seed monopoly. But at the same time, Trump is quietly working behind the scenes to expand the use of glyphosate on the nation's wildlife refuges. Yes, that's right, our wildlife refuges. In a memorandum, the Fish and Wildlife Services quietly rescinded a hard-won Obama-era legal agreement that banned the use of GMO crops, which are typically designed to be used with glyphosate pesticides, as well as controversial neonic pesticides, which are associated with the decimation of bee populations around the world. But not content with the widespread use of GMOs and bee-killing pesticides on farms, Trump is now just itching to bring these toxins to the most pristine parts of the country's wild lands. The Obama-era measure was implemented after a campaign by public employees, scientists, and environmental groups. It was based on the principle that curbing the human footprint on these preserves would help wildlife flourish. Now, the original advocates of that ban are stunned by Trump's unilateral reversal, And I spoke to senior counsel Peter Jenkins of the watchdog group Public Employees for Environmental Responsibility, or PEER. He explained why the public servants who administer the nation's wildlife refuges originally pushed for the ban, and now his organization is representing these staff and scientists who are fighting to keep bioengineering out of our nature preserves. Can you just describe what these crops are, who's growing them, and why it's happening in a wildlife refuge? Right. That's a good question. I mean, uh, there's hundreds of wildlife refuges around the country, and about 50 or so of them roughly actually include some sort of agriculture within the refuge. And the reasons for that are historical mostly um, because many of the wildlife refuges are for birds, and they were carved out of former agricultural land where the birds would used to go. And uh, now that they've created refuges in many of those areas, they still allow some crops to be grown, 
within those areas. Some of that is um, out of earlier agreements with the farmers and the community, and some of that is because they want to provide some crops for the birds to, to eat when they land. So not necessarily a bad thing. Uh, we're not opposed to um, any agriculture within those refuges as long as it's done very carefully. Uh, the significance of that memo that was issued on August 2nd was that four years earlier under the Obama administration, the refuge managers had realized that they didn't need to use a certain type of really destructive pesticides called the neonicotinoids, and they didn't need to use any GM crops in that agriculture. And in fact, those both of those things were harmful to birds and other wildlife that depends on national wildlife refuges. So they terminated their use four years ago. And that was How, great. Every, every, everybody applauded that except for the pesticide companies. It, it's been a long battle to sort of bring it under control and that, yes, it was used before. We don't know exactly how many places, but starting 2011, uh, my group here started suing this Fish and Wildlife Service because uh, it was pretty clear that they were using GMOs and that there was no need to, and it was unnecessary and potentially harmful to the birds that were using these refuges. So even refuge scientists were coming to us behind the scenes and saying, hey, you know, this stuff should not be done. It's not necessary and it harms the, the wildlife. So we started suing in 2011, and it was a result of three different lawsuits that in 2015, the service adopted this new policy recognizing that, yeah, we were right. They really didn't need to use GMOs or these harmful neonicotinoid insecticides either. Those were sort of added in to the last lawsuit in 2014. So as a result, the service adopted a good policy agreeing with us and blanketly blocking the use of those two things to, pr to protect birds on refuges. And that's what was changed uh, you know, last Friday. And so what what exactly was the administration's motivation for making this change? I mean, it doesn't seem like a whole lot of the uh, national agricultural system was hinging on the use of GM uh, crops or these pesticides question. on these specific wildlife refuges. So in terms of the motivation, I mean, you're talking about the Trump administration, so it seems like their main their main motivation is to undo any good uh, pro environmental progress that was made under the Obama administration and to serve the bare basis interests of industry. Um, so I suppose this serves the bare base interests of industry uh, as far as not wanting to see any harmful information about pesticides being put out that they might be harmful to wildlife, which. They are. Everyone knows they are, but industry still doesn't like that, and so put pressure on uh, Zinke, who's the you know Secretary of the Interior, Ryan Zinke. They we know that they put pressure on him to change this um, ban, and the um, the pressure was done by way of a letter that was issued last year from some pro pesticide scientists, and uh, you know we've got copies of those letters, but we don't know exactly. What was said behind the scenes, but we're going to put in a Freedom of Information request, request to try to find out what was said behind the scenes. The story is that in 2011, based on confidential tips from refuge managers, we 
sued uh, on on the issue and 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 prevailed first in a small area within Delaware and then we expanded that because it was the same issue all over the country and uh, we had good support from the refuge managers and the refuge system and the refuge scientists all the way along really and it was a fairly short period of time 2014 before they recognized that we were right as I said and that they uh, needed to change the policy allowing those things to happen within refuges and they proposed to change it and a year later it was changed so um, yeah we've worked with the refuge staff the experts within the refuges who agree with us and it's only you know through political appointees within the Department of Interior that it's been reversed the refuge staff doesn't want to reverse it at all from what we can tell that was Peter Jenkins of Peer. you're listening to belabored a descent magazine podcast Links to articles mentioned in this episode may be found at descentmagazine.org. The state of Missouri was the first to fire a volley back after the Supreme Court's Janus ruling, with a resounding victory for the labor movement in defeating a right-to-work measure on August 7th. As Nelson Lichtenstein notes in dissent, not only did opponents crush the law by a margin of more than two to one, the total vote on the issue, nearly 1.4 million, exceeded by more than 100,000 the number of statewide ballots cast on behalf of all candidates in both party primaries that same day. What did Missouri labor organizers do and how did they do it? We talked to two of them about the win, how it was won, what comes next, and what the rest of the country can learn from their incredible success. My name is Jessica Padola, and I am the Governmental Affairs Director for the International Union of Painters and Allied Trade, District Council 3, uh, representing uh, Missouri and the state of Kansas. My name is Shannon Duffy. I work for the United Media Guild. That's part of CWA. And I'm the labor co-chair of St. Louis Jobs with Justice. First things first, um, explain what the right to work ban uh, reverses in Missouri and how it will change labor organizing there. Proposition A reversed Senate Bill 19, which was a bill signed into law by our former governor, Eric Brightens, on February 6th. 2017, and he signed that bill into law at 9.30 in the morning, and at noon, the Missouri AFL-CIO, in partnership with the Missouri NAACP, filed a referendum with the Secretary of State's office that would allow us to um, gather signatures and place the the bill before the people of Missouri for an up or or down vote. And we won. So, yay. (laughs) The citizen's veto, as it's called, is a lot of states actually have that in their constitution, and and people don't even aren't even aware of that fact. But uh, and it it had only been used a handful of times here in Missouri, and uh, each time uh, the people overrode the legislature. I don't believe it's uh, a tactic has ever failed. It's a hard thing to get. You got to get an awful lot of signatures. You got to call it, you know. But um, it. Unfortunately, all it does is it it keeps the status quo, right? I mean, it's we remain a non-right-to-work state. However, going forward, your question was, you know, what does this change about labor organizing? It uh, it really does 
shows the solidarity, I believe, of the working people, union and non-union alike, in our state. Um, and we have some very exciting uh, ballot initiatives coming up in November. And hopefully, if the coalition holds, and I believe it will, Missouri will be a completely different state a year from now. Yeah, actually, talk a little bit about why this ended up being voted on now and not in November when the rest of the elections uh, happen. I'll just say, I think they, they didn't want all these people running to the polls and reelecting Claire McCaskill. <laughs> I would agree with that assessment. Uh, I, I will tell you that sponsors of, uh, of, the, of moving the bill, GOP uh, senator and a state representative said it was uh, because it wasn't fair that uh, the people of Missouri needed to decide this law right away so that uh, we could move our state forward. Um, that's the official reason that they gave. Uh, I'll tell you, if I was going to cut somebody's pay, I'd want that, you know, I'd want that election in an election where less people are going to vote. Mm -hmm. um, we anticipated about a million voters to come out for this election in August and 1.3 showed up. So the proponents of right to work looked at the August electorate and felt that it would be more favorable to their position. So they moved the, they moved the election. What they weren't counting on was uh, the coalition that we built that, you know, we never asked voters if they were a Democrat, if they were a Republican, if they were a union member, or a non-union member, if they were conservative or liberal or anything in between. We just simply talked to them about Proposition A and why it was so bad for our state. Mm -hmm. And uh, and that message carried the day. Yeah, and you won pretty decisively, not only in the percentage of the vote, but also geographically across the state. Um, were you surprised at the level of success? Well, what, there's 114 counties in the state of Missouri, mm -hmm. and, and uh, Prop A was defeated in 99 of them. It was even <laughs> Holly uh, Rader, the uh, state rep who sponsored the bill, the original bill, right to work. Uh, it was defeated in her home district, um, which was kind of sweet. She's from Sykeston, Missouri, uh, down near the boot heel. Um, so it was, it was broad. In, in the city of St. Louis, which isn't in a county, it's kind of its own thing. Um, uh, and the city is uh, predominantly African-American. The city of St. Louis, 88% voted against right to work. By the way, those, those, uh, those 15 counties that actually passed Prop A, it was, did it narrowly. Very, uh, very, 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 very close. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, people spoke loudly on this one, very loudly. So this people's veto provision, it can also be used against a law that has already been implemented, right? As well as a law that has just recently been passed and not implemented? So the constitutional referendum, as I understand it, is something that takes place when a law has been passed and signed by the governor but is not implemented yet. So um, right. that gave us until August 28th, which was 90 days after the end of the legislature, to submit signatures, uh, which had to equal 5% of the last gubernatorial vote in six out of eight of our congressional counties. That is, a, a, you know, qualifying for the ballot in Missouri is something that organizations in the past have really kind of concentrated on just qualifying in those six out of eight or two-thirds of our congressional districts. We are Missouri 
took a different tact. We, we targeted every corner of the state. We had um, signers from every county in this state. We qualified in all eight congressional districts and, and we needed to, to um, gather approximately 107,000 signatures across the, the different uh, congressional districts, but instead we turned in 310,567 signatures. And the day we turned those signatures in, 10 days early, they suspended implementation of the law. So um, the law, you know, it didn't become law until the people of Missouri got an opportunity to vote on it. Um, and so uh, as of now, we're still a collective bargaining state. Um, but I think it's important to remember that Senate Bill 19 was a statutory revision and not a constitutional amendment or anything along those line, lines. So it's you know simply a statutory revision in our state statutes. So um, unless the coalition holds and unless we finish the job come November, there's a very strong possibility um, that we might have to gear up and fight this fight again. Yeah, and qualifying in uh, all eight CDs was a first in this state. Right. Uh, no ballot initiative had ever garnered enough signatures in all of the congressional districts. That, that was uh, unheard of uh, until it happened. Um, but, uh, you know, to, to Jessica's point about the coalition, I would like to talk about that because yeah. there's some really interesting numbers that you can pull from this. For instance, um, when this was first defeated in Missouri in 1978, and I remember that, it was 60-40 against right to work. And people thought that was amazing. And, and it was. But now, uh, in 2018, you know, 40 years later, it's 67-33. And, and that was accomplished with half, half the number of union members in this state. So we really need to tip our hats to the coalition because this was not this was not just labor, okay? You take away the 240 or 260,000 union members in the state, and we still take them from the, from the vote count, and we still beat Prop A by over 200,000 votes. So there has been some very, very lovely, uh, important spade work going on in the garden that is Missouri for the last 10 years with coalitions like that, that I belong to, that a lot of unions belong to, Jobs with Justice, which is a coalition of unions, faith groups, community groups, and student groups. And, you know, for the last six years here in, in St. Louis and across the river in St. Charles, and now I believe in Kansas City and down in Springfield, mm -hmm. we have the Faith and Labor Alliance. Uh, every, every month we have a breakfast, and it's union leaders, and ministers, priests, rabbis, moms, talking about our shared values and, and, and talking to people from uh, the Missouri Budget Office and going over policy and just talking about why this matters to, you know, their constituents. And it's, it's a really, really powerful thing that's been happening in Missouri the last, I'd say, about 10 years. And there's been some really great uh, power building going on. And, and I think what we saw recently with Pompeii is a result of that. 
I mean, the, the AFL-CIO, God bless them, they did incredible work. But again, 88% of the voters in uh, urban St. Louis, right? Uh, anti I mean, just you go around into to rural communities where there's not a strong union presence. And our partners yeah. with the Missouri Rural Crisis Center, you know, family farmers and all. It, this thing was just so broad and so all-encompassing. It was amazing. And, and to build on, on Shannon's point, um, I don't think there was a labor member or leader in this state that did not understand the consequences of the November vote in 2016. I had a member call me at midnight um, that election night absolutely panicked uh, because uh, Governor Greitens had been elected and and we had already had multiple uh, right-to-work bills that had been introduced in this state in the last six or seven years, but we always had a stopgap with Governor Jay Nixon. Um, and, and we built a coalition of, you know, some good, strong uh, labor Republicans as well, folks who represent heavy, heavy union districts um, and our Republicans that we've been able to work with to help us kind of, um, you know, stop those attacks on working families. And we didn't have, we didn't have that coming into that legislative session. Um, but we had already been laying the groundwork uh, with, you know, the coalition building that uh, Shannon is talking about, but also it really gave labor an opportunity to come together, put aside our differences, and work towards some, some solidarity and work for the greater good. Uh, we are Missouri, the coalition that uh, defeated Proposition A. Um, you know, that coalition is full of the United Brotherhood of Carpenters, not a member of the AFL-CIO, Teamsters, not a member of the AFL-CIO, you know, SEIU, not a member of the, of the AFL-CIO, we all came together um, and, and we worked together to, uh, you know, to defeat Proposition A, even when we didn't know that it was going to be Proposition A, even when we didn't know whether the election would be in August or in November. You know, I, I was released to the campaign 18 months ago, and so this has been my life for the last 18 months, and um. And I was somebody who was like, if they want to put it on the August ballot, bring it on. We have the momentum. Uh, we have the passion. Our members are passionate about this issue. Uh, you know, it will motivate them to, uh, to volunteer, to get the word out. And it was that intensity, that level of commitment that carried the day. Uh, I walked into a grocery store, I don't know, maybe four or five days before the election, and I was standing in line and there was a lady talking to the cashier. She said, you know, don't forget to go vote on Tuesday. Make sure you vote against Proposition A. And I, I thought, oh, yes, you know, I, <laughs> we, have, we have done it. She, there was no identifying marker on this woman telling me that she was a union member, a non-union member. And, and she, was spreading, she was spreading the word on our behalf. And, you know, I'll just give you an anecdotal piece of evidence. I like to vote on election day. It's very important to me. I was the second person at my polling location on August 7th. Uh, the guy that walked in right in front of me walked in and he said to the election judges, uh, what ballot is Proposition A on? I need to vote on Proposition A. 
and the judge said it's on all the ballots and he said oh good I'll take a Republican one and in my heart my you know my 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 fingers were just like yes because I knew um, I knew that if we could carry 30 percent of the predicted Republican votes mm -hmm. that that would be enough to carry the day uh, but I think that the numbers that we're seeing are telling us that, that we carried north of 40% uh, of the Republican vote. And, um, and I think that that's powerful uh, because, you know, partisanship really hampers the ability to have conversations with folks about issues, right? Like, oh, we want to talk to people about our pocketbook issues. And if, if we start the conversation with, um, you know, Republicans are against uh, labor unions or Democrats are for labor unions, then we're starting the conversation in a, in a place that's not an honest, uh, it's not an honest way to build a relationship. And, it, and people automatically get their feathers ruffled. We didn't do that. At Jay with Jay, we have uh, something called the Champions Program. And we have its uh, Champions Strategy Sessions. And um, they do a very deep dive. And we used 110 uh, faith and community leaders, all non labor uh, to go out and speak about uh, the evils of Prop A to their constituents, 110, all non-labor, you know, and we, we, we look at at these strategy sessions, you know, the implications morally, spiritually, racially, socially, fiscally, and, and politically, and, and we get people to connect their values and the values of their constituents with the campaign. So why does uh, right to work. Why does how, why does that matter to Missionary Baptist Church? Why does it matter to a women's uh, reproductive health service? Why does it matter to teachers? And one of the things that come out of the strategy sessions was talking about the loss of infrastructure from this law, and it was brought up that about a third of uh, education dollars will be cut. Well, you know public education is already under attack, right? So helping people connect how this affects their community is, is really, really important. And as I said, we've got two really important issues coming up here in November that are going to continue to transform our state. One is RUM, uh, Raise Up Missouri, are you on, uh, to the minimum wage. We, we increased it in the city of St. Louis and the Republican-controlled legislature and Griden's uh, preempted it. So now we're going statewide, $12 an hour. That will be on the ballot in November. Also something called the CLEAN Initiative, C-L-E-A-N, Citizens and, and Legislators for Ethics and Accountability. Now it ends dark money. It ends unlimited campaign contributions. It ends gerrymandering of districts. Uh, it ends the revolving door where you can go from legislator to a lobbyist and back. It is literally, it is a game changer. And what we are doing now is we're having champion strategy sessions this time with labor leaders and business leaders and people, that, you know, and we've got to keep this coalition going because we literally are going to transform the state of Missouri. So you've mentioned getting Republicans to vote for this. You also mentioned your governor a couple of times. For people who have not been following uh, Missouri politics, give us a little rundown on your uh, recent former governor. I first met Eric Greitens in 2008 at the Democratic National Convention in uh, Denver, Colorado. Um, and when I first met him, 
I, like many people, was impressed with his resume. He was an Oxford scholar. He had founded an organization called The Mission Continues. And he seemed on paper, at least, to be a great potential leader. I say that because I think it's important to understand that when Missourians showed up at the polls to vote in November, uh, they didn't know Eric Wright. He didn't have a history of public service that they could talk about. You know, there were no votes to point to. Instead, we were given a carefully crafted message that really didn't say anything, right? So um, those of us that follow politics knew that Eric Greitens wasn't who he said he was. Those of us that followed politics understood that he had registered you know, Eric Greitens for governor, Eric Greitens for Senate, Eric Greitens for president. He had registered all those websites in 2009. Um, so I think those of us who paid attention understood that we were a stepping stone for him. I say all of that uh, because I think it's important to know. When he came to Jefferson City and was sworn in to governor, he, uh, he was very adamant that he was going to, ch you know, change things in Jefferson City and he was going to shake things up and uh, he really attacked public servants, politicians, bureaucrats. I mean, he just kind of went after everybody. And, so and, much so and, that when right. he got in trouble, none of the none of the Republicans would come to his uh, his aid because he had so alienated members of his own party. He, he and his allies founded an organization called a New Missouri, which was a 501c4, a dark money group that was used to bolster the governor and his policies. That organization tweeted out a personal cell phone number of a Republican state senator that the governor was um, at odds with. I mean, like he really went after members of his own party and in uh, Democrats too. Um, within the first week, there was a lock on the, on the press office of the governor, which was something that nobody could remember. Uh, you know, he refused to do press conferences uh, you know, he was very carefully crafting his image. He was um, also Mike Pence's best friend. Uh, he was always going to see the vice president. Yeah. And he, he did have uh, Greitens for president, domain registered, yep. and all that. Very ambitious. And a lot of people thought, oh, God, if something, if Trump gets in trouble and Pence becomes president, Greitens could be the VP. I mean, people were actually saying, what if? Because, and it was like, oh, my God. I, the man was really, really ambitious. And and uh, and really mean, as it turns out, really a mean person. Yeah. His second state of the state, there started to be grumblings that day that something really big was coming down and something was happening. And uh, that night, I think it was KMOB, a television station in St. Louis, ran an interview with the ex-husband of a woman that Governor Grimes admitted to having an affair with. You know, there are transcripts from a House investigation that are disgusting. And as a, as a woman and um, as a mother of two amazing daughters, uh, if a man had ever treated me the way they are Greitens treated this woman or treated my girls that way, I would ask that he be prosecuted. Uh, it was bad. So we can say that there are there are climactic factors in Missouri that made it a, a right moment to uh, to pass such a referendum. Yeah. So uh, 
on the actual issue of you know open versus closed shop organizing, which is ultimately what um, you know right to work um, is based on, um, can you can you talk a little bit about the history of open and closed shop organizing in, in Missouri? What closed shop organizing has has meant uh, for its existing unions, um, even at a time when uh, labor is declining across the country in terms of union membership. Yeah, we still have uh, union shop, uh, and and we've never been right to work. So, I would say that we have uh, a really good culture here for unions. Uh, we have something in in the metropolitan area here in St. Louis that I don't believe is exists anywhere else. Uh, in the country and it's called labor clubs and there's nine of them, nine of them. And some of them are 60, 70 miles away. And uh, they've been around since 1988, which is when some guys in the building trades uh, noticed that the central labor council in St. Louis was no longer uh, doing things like uh, school board uh, races, fire district races, you know, the really, really great, you know, community, small town community. Um, so they formed a club, uh, and I went to second meeting <laughs> and, uh, now there's, like I said, there's nine of them and we go to these and they're very, very blue collar, right? There's not a lot of labor leaders there. There's a lot of union members and they'll say, uh, Hey, Sarah's running for, uh, Hazelwood school board. Uh, we need 30 people Saturday, uh, or a lit drop or the knock doors and 30 hands go up, 40 hands go up. All right, you guys go over there. And it's amazing. It's, it's their labor legislative club. So that's part of the DNA around here. Um, I, I don't think you have that anywhere else. We do have, because of our state constitution, our, our public employees are open shop. Mm-hmm. So, um, and with Senate Bill 14, what is it, 1413? Uh, yeah. It's just devastated that and i'm sure jessica jessica could talk to that but um you know public employees are really under attack um here in in the state and uh you know things like check off and all that is going away so um right um recertification uh every year, on the right? horizon right it's well it, it's very similar to the bill that was passed in Iowa two years ago that established the Public Employee Relations Board. It is a similar construct without the curb and without uh, the Iowa bill went a little bit further. I don't want any of our legislators to get any ideas here, but it, it is a very, very harmful bill and they do have to recertify every time a contract comes up, which these are state and municipal employees So those contracts come up, I think, every one to three years. And instead of, uh, you know, if you had a bargaining unit that had 50 members, your recertification campaign was 25 plus one. Well, now the recertification recertification campaign is 50 plus one. So even if they are not a member of the union, they have to vote to uh, hold the union. So it's a a really onerous bill, um, you know, designed to make sure that we're spending all of our time organizing our members and getting our votes out and not doing what unions were designed to do, which is advocate for our members and to uh, advocate for policies that are more worker friendly. Yeah. And there's all this is by design. I mean, the reason the cookie cutter type laws is, you know, groups like Alec, but Mm -hmm. here in Missouri, down in Joplin, there's a guy named uh, David Humphreys. 
And last time I was in Capital, Jeff City, somebody said, why don't they just put his name on the building? He paid for everybody. And, you know, I mean, he basically owns a lot of the legislators. Right. They do. You know, one of the uh, criticisms that came out after Tuesday's uh, sounding defeat of Proposition A from, you know, the Chamber of Commerce and some of the anti-worker legislators in the state was, well, the union flooded this state with money. Uh, David Humphreys personally has spent between 14 and $17 million buying the best state government money can buy. Personally, one man has spent that much money. He hates unions with every fiber of his being. He, He owns a building supply company, and it's, from what I'm told, they're not very good building supplies. As a matter of fact, one of the things he's pushed for is laws that uh, take Binding away arbitration. Uh, liability right. for, uh, yeah. But he's the largest uh, manufacturer of, uh, what is it, roofing supplies, I believe, in the world. Yep. And he has taken it as his mission to uh, eliminate unions in the state of Missouri. I'd like to point out that Proposition A was defeated in Vernon County, which is home to one David Humphrey. Yeah, that's so great. So labor has been successful with ballot initiatives. In other places, I'm thinking about, you know, Ohio after Senate Bill 5 gripped public sector organizing rights and across the country minimum wage fights like the one you're having. Um, But obviously, not every state has the ability to do this. We see the difference between Wisconsin and Ohio. And so talk about the sort of the specific constraints you had on having a referendum and what the pros and cons are, I guess, in having these fights on the ballot. One of the things that I took solace in in November um, 2016 um, was the fact that good, strong, pro-worker, pro-education, progressive initiatives uh, flourished everywhere they were on the ballot that year, right? You, You saw minimum wage increases in places like Wyoming and Montana. They beat back charter schools in places like Massachusetts and Atlanta. And, uh, and, and I remember I was so, so depressed. And uh, Richard Von Blon, who works for Missouri Jobs with Justice and was very helpful on our campaign for the defeat of Prop A, reminded me that everywhere progress was on the ballot, progress won. And I think that one of the biggest constraints we had on this initiative, this entire initiative process was to keep it nonpartisan. I mean, there were Democrats and Republicans all over the state that were saying, I'm the Prop A candidate, you know, putting our logo on their literature. It was humorous, wasn't it? Everybody was. Yeah. I mean, like Democrats and Republicans, right? People not running for state legislative races, people running for fireboards and waterboards, you know, and they were, I'm against Prop A. So it was amazing to see that. You know, I, I have uh, worked in, in politics for a very long time. I'm 45. I have worked in politics my entire career. Um, I'm married to a union plumber. I've worked in the Missouri labor movement since 2014. But I have never been a part of a campaign with such um, cultural penetration as Proposition A. And so uh, sometimes that was really tough, right? You have a, a statewide office holder 
that's up for election in November and Senator Claire McCaskill um, running against our Attorney General who was, uh, who had said he was in favor of right to work and navigating those, those waters. Uh, because truthfully, we had Trump and Hawley voters that came out on Tuesday and voted no on Proposition A. So walking that very fine line with, with legislative leaders that have always been staunch allies of the labor movement in this state and trying to keep Proposition A about simply Proposition A was actually really a very difficult journey to navigate. So as far as um, referendums go, this was the first such referendum that effectively reversed a, a right to work law um, in the country, I believe. Um, so I guess, what does this say about how aware people are of right to work nationally, maybe? And is Missouri, in that sense, a bellwether for some kind of backlash against these laws, which are, you know, currently implemented in about From half the country? God's ear. Right. You know, I think that we are seeing a resurgence in union favorability um, lately. I don't remember where I saw the numbers, but, uh, you know, unions are gaining in favorability around the country. Um, unions with uh, millennials are actually really gaining in popularity. And I think that folks understand the power of now, I hope that the 27 states that have laws like Proposition A uh, look at what it takes to reverse those laws in their states. You know, whether it's a referendum or an initiative process. I mean, I, I heard from a friend uh, right after the election who said, you know, I think we're going to try to do this here. I was like, give me a call. I will be there. I will drive down to home on the weekends and knock doors with you guys. You know, I, I, I think that we might see it in a place like Virginia that has had a wholesale change in their legislature. Um, I, I think that you're going to begin to see folks looking at what happened in Missouri and, and saying to themselves, well, they did it. A, Can I do it? Yeah, there is a, a sea change, and and it's been coming. In, in uh, 2005, USA Today ran a uh, poll that they did with Gallup, and it said that, and I think it was for the first time in a generation, when people read about uh, a labor struggle for the first time in like 30 years or maybe longer, they identify with with the union and not the company that was that was big and then you know this was during george w bush's administration then he crashes the economy obama takes over you know repairs it but still you know still to this day people aren't doing a lot better they just aren't it's still hard and i will say that as someone who's organized for over 40 years i've never seen it easier to organize uh, a union than right now. I was in Rockford a few years ago organizing the Rockford Register Star newspaper up there. And I remember I was talking to this woman and, you know, you have to meet people quietly. You know, the, the, the employer doesn't find out. I mean, you know, until you file with the National Labor Relations Board, right? Um, and at one point she just looked at me and she said, you know what, this damn place deserves a union. Give me that card. And I thought... <laughs> This, this damn place. I mean, people are just, 
you know, it requires organizing requires them workers to take a, a little bit of a leap of faith with with you that I believe the union that we can do this together, right? And people are ready to make that. They really are. People are fed up. They're struggling. They're fed up with reports of, yeah, the economy's so much better and profits are way up and they're still struggling. Our message resonates. I agree with that. Say wherever progress is on the ballot, progress wins. Yes. Yes. I believe that. I totally believe that. And and I'm going to say, uh, as somebody who works for a construction union in the building trades, you know, one of the one of the really intentional conversations we decided to have was with our members' spouses, because our members didn't always go home and tell them what was at stake. Look, I, I'm married to a union plumber. He doesn't come home and tell me about the business of his union. You know, like I understand the mentality behind that, but. You know, when you start talking to people who are who know folks that are struggling to pay their bills or don't have health insurance or their health premiums are rising, and you start thinking about what you can lose as a family, that's pretty darn powerful. But we also had lots of conversations, uh, especially uh, during the the signature gathering phase. Uh, you know, people saying to to us, you know, look, I I'm a non-union painter. Um, I don't want to join the union, but I know that the union is keeping, making sure that I've got good benefits or my, you know, I'm getting paid $22 an hour instead of 12. Uh, as long as we continue to really, really explain to people what the benefits are of being organized, I think you're going to see an explosion of union membership across this country. You know, I am a, I'm 45 years old, and I'm one of those people that says the millennials are going to save us from ourselves, and I absolutely believe that. But I I say that because I look at the powerful, organic organizing that is going on in this country around issues that are important to people, and you can see when people start to make the connection. Oh, well, if I show up at this rally and this protest to protest this policy of this president, Look at what we accomplish when so many people show up and stand up. And then they go to work and they think, you know, I'm working at the Dollar General in Versailles, Missouri, and I'm making just above minimum wage. Yeah, maybe a union would be good for me. And I bring that up specifically because USCW has organized a Dollar General store in Versailles, Missouri, which is a tiny little community. Uh, Not a lot of jobs, not a lot of industry. But the employees at that Dollar General store understood that if they banded together, maybe they could get a little bit more of their fair share. I think sometimes people think, oh, union members, they just don't want companies to profit or they don't want contractors to do well. That's the exact opposite of true, right? We, we do want our contractors to do well. We do want our companies to profit. We just don't think that they should profit on our back. Right. We just happen to believe that we deserve a little bit more too, because without labor, there is no capital. And, and, and convincing folks and un- helping people to understand that capital has no loyalty. Capital doesn't care if it's producing a carrier in, you know, air conditioner in Indiana or Mexico. Capital only cares about capital. 
That was Jessica Badola and Shannon Duffy, and there will be links up at our website for more information about the Missouri labor movement and their big win. That is all we have time for this week. As always, thank you to all of you for listening, and a special thanks to our sustaining members who keep us going with monthly donations to the podcast. You can become a sustaining member at three different levels at descentmagazine.org slash belabored-membership. Just $5 a month gets you a sweet belabored tote bag. You can also make a one-time donation. Thanks to Descent, as always, for keeping us going for over 150 episodes. And thanks to Natasha Lewis for making us sound good for all of them. You can always email us at belabored at descentmagazine.org if you are a prison striker or outside organizer, if you voted against right to work or are planning a new agenda for labor, or tweet at us at hashtag belabored. We will be back in two weeks. Solidarity. You've been listening to Descent Magazine's Belabored Podcast. For the entire archive of past episodes, visit descentmagazine.org. Join us online using hashtag belabored.